I've eaten a lot of meals in my life, in my 38 years, and yet the vast majority of them I don't remember. But a few of them I will never forget. One of those meals was four years ago on one of our trips to India. Something happened that year that had never happened before. We were out in the deep forest with one of the churches, and we ate a meal together with the people of that church as we always did. And up to that point in our many years of trips, going and being with them, they'd always, in those moments, prepare a table up at the front of the church. They'd set up a table that was for our team to treat us as their honored guests. And we never ate at the same table with Isaiah and Anunth, who we partner with in their ministry because they wanted to be good hosts and to show honor and deference to us. India is a hospitality culture. And so to not appropriately honor your guests is shameful. And as you can imagine, uh, of course, we would receive that honor whenever they would offer it to us. But at the same time, it always made us feel this distance between us and them. Here we are sitting in the seat of honor, and they're all out there sitting somewhere else. And I always wanted those moments to have a, a, a deeper sense of closeness and intimacy with them. I desired for all that formality to fade away and for us to have a deeper sense a friendship together. But like I said, that year was different. When the time came to eat, I started to make my way up to the front of the church to sit at the table at the front, but it unstopped me. And he directed me over to a little small table with three chairs. I thought maybe I was getting demoted to the children's table or something. And it served me up some macaroni and cheese. He directed me to sit at this table with three chairs, so I sat down by myself. And they came along and they served up the food on all three plates. And I'm just sitting there waiting for everyone to begin eating. And then, Isaiah and Anunth, they came and they sat down at the other two chairs. They sat down at the same table and we shared a meal together. Now, throughout our many trips over the years, they'd always expressed their gratitude in our partnership with them. They were always so thankful for the ways that we served alongside them and the relationship that we had. But by inviting me to sit with them and share a meal together in silence, that meant far more than anything they could ever communicate with words. Because by inviting me to sit and eat a meal with them, well, that meant now we're more than guests. Now we are more than just partners and fellow laborers. Now we're family. It was that meal that communicated that the relationship had changed. That meal communicated clearly that the relationship had changed. We're starting a new sermon series today called The Banquet. And in this series, we're going to look at the many meals that Jesus ate throughout the Gospel of Luke. 
And maybe that seems like an odd thing to fill an entire sermon series with. But how about an entire gospel? Because Luke is filled with meals. So much so that one-third of the verses in the gospel of Luke occur at a meal. These meals are very important to Luke because they teach us something about Jesus. Because remember, what was essentially the first criticism that Jesus received in his ministry? It was about who he ate with. He ate and he drank with sinners. When we think about Jesus' ministry, the magnificent typically overshadows the mundane. When we think about Jesus' ministry, we think about his miracles, but we forget about his meals, yet they are just as important. Why? Because those meals communicate to us that the relationship has changed. These meals communicate to us that there's a new opportunity that's been put on the table. God is inviting us into a new kind of relationship with him. These meals communicate that God is doing something new. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about at the end of this passage. And I want to look at what he says at the end because it gives us a framework for understanding everything that actually happens and is occurring in this story. He says in verse 36, he says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. What's he saying? Jesus is saying that he represents that God is doing something new. Something new has entered into this world, and Jesus is that new thing. And if you look at these two examples with the garments and the wineskins, this new thing that God is doing in Jesus is disruptive and destructive to old ways of doing things. Jesus does not mix with what is old. Jesus doesn't mix with old ways of life. Jesus is not a patch that you can use to mend up a couple areas in your life that you feel need to be fixed up. Jesus can't be poured into old patterns of religion and lifestyle and expectations. No, in fact, just like these old wineskins, he destroys them. He bursts them apart. So Jesus is saying this, if you want him, then something old must be left behind. So to try and make sense of what Jesus is saying, how does it play out in this story? How does this newness confront what is old? We're going to try and make sense of it by looking at two responses to Jesus in this story. We're going to look at Levi's response, and we're going to look at the Pharisee's response. Now, Levi, you know by a different name. He's more commonly referred to as Matthew, the disciple who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. But, to avoid any confusion, we're just going to call him Levi this morning. And it says in verse 27 that Jesus went out and saw Levi sitting at the tax booth. Because Levi's a tax collector. He's the guy that everybody loved to hate. He represented everything 
that was wrong with the world. Jesus finds him sitting at his tax booth doing what he does every other day. He's robbing his own people, extorting them with outrageous taxes, lining his own pockets, building his own house at the expense of his own people. And it's hard to impress in our modern day how much Levi would have been despised. And so why does this scum show up in the story? It's because Jesus was looking for him. In verse 27, it kind of reads as though Jesus just passively saw Levi. But Luke actually uses a term that's as active and intentional as it gets. Jesus didn't just happen to see Levi. Jesus was looking for Levi. Why? Because Jesus is doing something new. Old ways of understanding who's in and who's out no longer apply. The relationship has changed. A new opportunity has been put on the table. He comes up to Levi and he says, follow me. And then it says, leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And then it says that Levi threw a great feast. Now that language, that's party language. This was a huge banquet. This was a huge celebration. This was a huge feast. Levi made a huge Costco run. Levi fired up the smoker. Levi hired Chef Kenny to cater. This was a meal in which Levi spared no expense. And he invited all of his scum of the earth, tax collector friends, and they ate like kings. This was a feast for sinners. And Jesus was at the very center because he was the most honored guest. Do you see this new thing that God is doing unfold before your eyes? God sat down in the house of sin and shame to commune and fellowship with sinners. And who doesn't want to be at that party? Yet, maybe there's a question that raises in your mind. Did Levi really leave everything behind to follow Jesus when he's throwing this huge banquet? Did he really leave behind his home? Did he really leave behind his wealth and his money? Did he really leave everything behind whenever he's throwing the biggest party in town? Well, it's a good question. This is where we have a chance to get a truer and deeper understanding of discipleship and what it really means to respond to this new thing called Jesus. Because the truth is, we often idealize and romanticize discipleship as though it's this instant vow of poverty, right? It's all about how much you give up, where all of your possessions are given up, and Jesus immediately expects you to go to the bank and liquidate all of your assets, and of course, to throw away all your secular CDs while you're at it, right? It's about what you give up. And part of the reason we idealize it is because, you know, we think of things like the disciples immediately dropping their nets to follow Jesus, leaving everything behind with nothing but the clothes on their back. Or in particular, we think about the rich young ruler who Jesus told him to sell everything he had to give it to the poor and to come and follow him. 
and we treat that as a generalized call to discipleship to follow Jesus and think that's what it really looks like. That's it in its pureness and most genuine form. Yet the reality is the rich young ruler is the only person Jesus told to do that. And there were good reasons for it. The mistake would be that we take that particular call to one person and we make it the generalized call to every person. But that doesn't really make any sense, does it? Because if you think about it, how can we be obedient to the Bible's call to be generous if we're not allowed to own anything? How could the church in Acts meet in one another's homes if they're supposed to leave all of that behind whenever they converted? Yes, Peter responded and left his nets behind and answered the call to follow Jesus. But what happens after that? Well, Jesus stayed in Peter's house. Why? Because Peter still owned his house. Discipleship is not about what you own. It's about what owns you. So what does, Jesus, or what does Luke want us to see about following Jesus? What's he want us to see about discipleship? What's he want us to see about a real call and response to following him? He wants us to see this beautiful disruption that happened in Levi's life when he encountered this new thing called Jesus. He wants us to see how Jesus disrupted his old life from top to bottom and nothing was left the same. Just consider all that Luke tells us about. Levi's career was disrupted when he left his old job in the tax booth. Levi's home was disrupted whenever he transformed his house into a house of hospitality that gave to others instead of being a house that's built by taking from others. We see that Levi's wealth was disrupted when he spent a fortune throwing a banquet to honor Jesus. Levi's friendships were disrupted because he invited everyone he knew, all the other tax collectors, which were probably the only friends that he had. Why? Because he wanted them to know this new thing too. He wanted them to experience Jesus. So do you see this beautiful disruption that Luke wants us to see? How when Jesus entered Levi's story, it reoriented his entire life around him. Jesus didn't become just a part of Levi's life. He became the very point of Levi's life. Following Jesus took on a new priority and reshaped every aspect of his life to where each of those things now pointed to Jesus. His job, his income, his wealth, his home, his friendships have now all been disrupted and now re-centered around Jesus. Why? Because Levi wanted to taste that new wine. And he let that old life go. Now, how does Jesus want to meet you in this story? What do we as Christians do with it? What are you to do with this story as someone who's already chosen to follow Jesus and answered that discipleship call? Well, here's something to consider. How much of your life has been disrupted by Jesus lately? How much of your life has been oriented around him? Has he disrupted the way that you think about your job? 
Has he disrupted the way you use your wealth? Has he disrupted what happens in your home? Has he disrupted how you engage in your friendships and relationships? As you think about your life right now, does it look any differently than it would if you'd never heard of Jesus? If your mind could be completely wiped of any knowledge or memory of him, would your life look that much different this week? Maybe part of it is because you're trying to fit what's new into what's old. Maybe you're trying to just use Jesus as a patch to mend up those holes in your life. You only go to him to patch up those rough seasons and those difficult moments. Maybe you're trying to pour Jesus into old wineskins where you're trying to hold on to an old way of life but also hoping to get Jesus at the same time. So I want Jesus, but I want to spend my money how I want. I want Jesus, but I want to use my time however I want. I want Jesus, but. And in the end, Jesus doesn't disrupt anything because nothing old is left behind. And this passage actually pushes back on how we think about discipleship. Because too often when we think about discipleship and we think about following Jesus, we cringe. And maybe you're even cringing now. Why? Because we think about all that might change. We often think about all that we'd have to give up. We think about all that would be disrupted if we really set the course of our life to follow after Jesus. But we focus too much on what is lost and we don't think about what is gained. Because what does this story tell you was the result of all of this disruption in Levi's life? It was communion and fellowship with Jesus. It was closeness with him. This meal teaches you, Christian, that Jesus isn't just some party killer. The point of all of this disruption in Levi's life wasn't about all that he left behind. It was about what he gained communion, and fellowship with Jesus Christ. It wasn't about giving up the old wine. It was about his desire to taste new wine. So do you desire that in your life? Where can you start? Well, maybe you need to be willing to leave behind a little sleep so that you can get up and commune and fellowship with Jesus each morning. Maybe you need to leave behind a little free time so that you can commune and fellowship with him in prayer. Maybe you need to leave an episode or two behind so that you and your spouse can commune and fellowship with Jesus together. Because God has put a new relationship on the table. Are you willing to let Jesus disrupt those old patterns of life so that you can commune and fellowship with him? Because at this party, Jesus says that there's a danger when he enters our life and yet nothing about life really changes. That's what he's talking about in the very last verse when he says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. What's he saying? He's simply pointing out a blunt reality of his ministry that there will be those who encounter him, and yet nothing about their lives will change. 
They will say in their heart and they will express it with their lives that I like my life how it is. There's nothing appealing enough about Jesus to cause me to change anything. Fellowship and communion with him isn't enough for me to leave anything behind. And there's a danger when Jesus enters our life and yet nothing about life really changes. And we watch that sad reality play out with the Pharisees in this story. Because they see this party going on, this rager at Levi's house with all of these sinners and sinners that they despise, and they ask their famous question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And it's so fitting that these Pharisees are on the outside looking in at this new thing that God is doing. Because they didn't have a box for God showing up and going out to those people. And yet Jesus states it in the simplest of terms what this new mission of God is. He's going after sinners. He's going out to the margins. He's going out to the despised, to the unclean, to the unfit, to the unworthy. Why? Because he's looking for them. He's not sitting back waiting for them to get cleaned up and get everything in order. No, just like we see with Levi, he's looking for them in their sin. He's finding them in their shame, and he's inviting them to come close and to commune with him because he did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners. And yet, just like Jesus, Jesus said, these Pharisees didn't want new wine. They were satisfied with the old wine. They see this new thing that God is doing in Jesus, and they recoil. They recoil. And you think, why is that? How could these men who knew the Scriptures so well How could the ones who were so well-versed in the scriptures have this recoiling response to Jesus? How can they be so close and yet at the same time be so far away? How can they think that they're safe and yet they are the ones in the most danger? It all comes down to what this meal represents. God came down so that God could come close. He came to commune and fellowship with sinners, and that's exactly what the Pharisees were not interested in. And we start to understand why in their second question of Jesus in verse 33. They ask a question about fasting, not feasting. They say the disciples of John the Baptist fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, your disciples, they eat and drink. So what are they asking? Well, they're saying, Jesus, all the other disciples around town practice fasting and prayers and do religious things, but why is it that your disciples always seem to be throwing a party? And what does Jesus say? He says, of course they are, because I'm here. Who makes their wedding guests fast when the bridegroom finally arrives at the reception? 
Now that's the time to celebrate. That's when you throw a party. I'm here. And it's about feasting with me. I am the point. If you go back to the Old Testament, fasting was very much a part of the religious life of Israel, but it was actually very rarely required. Yet, the Pharisees fasted all the time. They were probably fasting in the middle of a fast as they asked Jesus this question. It was rarely required, and yet when it was required, fasting was about two things. The first is that fasting was meant to incline one's heart towards God as the source of all good and life and satisfaction. It was about inclining one's heart to encounter the goodness of God. But secondly, it was meant to incline one's heart towards their neighbor. To where fasting would create that hunger within them so that their heart would go out towards others who hunger. So that fasting, when they felt that thirst, it would create an empathy in their heart towards those who were thirsty. Fasting was a chance to give up a meal so that they could give a meal to someone in need. Yet the Pharisees got everything backwards, didn't they? Fasting was about seeking the goodness of God and the good of their neighbor, and yet they got everything wrong. The Pharisees were known for their fasting. They fasted all the time. They were super fasters. And yet for all of that fasting, what do we see? We see in this story the complete opposite of everything that fasting was intended to be. Fasting didn't incline their heart towards others. Instead, they stood in judgment and held all of these tax collectors and Levi and sinners in contempt. They looked down their pious noses at everything that was going on. And most of all, it didn't incline their hearts towards God. Because when he was standing right in front of them, liven in the flesh, they despise him. Why? It's because all of that fasting, all of their religious ritual was about them. It was about demonstrating their own righteousness and doing things that made them feel good about themselves. It was never about communing with God. Because when they had the chance to do it, They wanted nothing to do with it. They missed the point that it all comes down to communion and fellowship with God. As Christians, we are, after all, in the end, all headed to one big party. So how can you know if this morning you become like one of these Pharisees? How can you know if you're on the outside looking in at what God is doing in Jesus? Well, has your attendance in worship been about communing with Jesus? Or is it about checking a box because you feel guilty when you don't? Have you developed an us versus them mentality in your life where you despise and judge others that think and act differently than you do? You don't express God's open invitation to the world, but you'd close it off towards them. In your heart, you really prefer, perhaps, that the church would shut her doors towards sinners. 
Because opening those doors wide might lead us on a slippery slope. Do you feel uncomfortable when new believers come into the faith because they don't have all their theology together the way you do? And so you're quick to share a book instead of share a meal. Or is all of your Bible study, your theology reading and prayer actually made you feel a deeper sense of communion with the Lord Jesus? Or is it just religious ritual that makes you feel good about yourself? Is there any room for fellowship with others in your life and in your walk with Jesus? Or is it all heady and heavy and yet you find yourself not close with anyone? In the end, amidst all of your religious activity, is there any joy at all? Is there any room for celebration? So maybe this morning you feel like, yeah, not much of my life has been oriented around Jesus lately. Or maybe you feel like, yeah, I have a lot more in common with these Pharisees than I do Levi. Well, if that's you, my friend, that's fantastic. That's the best thought you've had all day. Because Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. And I'd invite you to remember the story. How Jesus came looking for the one who was busy in their sin and in their shame. He came to invite the one to come close and to follow him so that they might know the joy of communion and fellowship with him. And I'm not talking about Levi. I'm talking about you. Because that's your story. Jesus came looking for you this morning and he invites you to come to his table. Because if this meal communicates anything, it communicates that the relationship has changed. A new opportunity is on the table. And he invites you to come to commune and fellowship with him. You're the one he's looking for. Let's pray together.